0: Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 through 34. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you? He asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hello, my name is Aaron, uh, one of the pastors here at Exilic. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. And secondly, uh, we've been doing a teaching series uh, that we've entitled The Go Campaign uh, for the past few weeks. And the reason why we've entitled this series Go Campaign is because whenever you enter into A relationship with God, He sends you back out into the world, and He sends you back out into the world as a new person, renewing the lives of the people that are around you. So we've been taking a look at three demographics in our series that we've entitled "The Least, The Last, and The Lost." We've devoted a few sermons to each of these demographics, and today we're finishing up our series on the demographic the last, which we've identified as those that are poor and marginalized uh, in our society. And so we've taken a look in the past at what justice is. Uh, Last week, we we took a look at how we should think about the poor, that before we do anything triumphalistic for the poor and marginalized, we first have to think differently about them. And today, we're not going to talk about how we should think about the poor and marginalized, but we're going to talk about how we should feel with regards and respect to the poor, and the marginalized. Well, if you take a look at the Gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the Gospel writers uh, sort of portray a kaleidoscope of different emotions uh, portrayed by Jesus. And so sometimes Jesus is full of love, uh, he's full of joy, other times he's filled with righteous anger, sometimes sorrow, Jesus weeps, he grieves, he's distressed, but do you know what emotion is most commonly and frequently portrayed of Jesus in the gospel accounts? The most common emotion that Jesus displays in the gospels is compassion. Over and over again, it says that Jesus is filled with compassion, or he is moved by compassion, particularly for uh, towards those that are distressed and those that are hurting. So, if you take a look with me at verse thirty-four. It says that Jesus had compassion on them, that's the two blind men, uh, and he touched their eyes. And so what basically, basically what this means is this, the more compassion we have for the distressed and the marginalized, the more like Jesus we are. The less compassion we have for the distressed and marginalized, the less like Jesus we are. So I'm going to take a look at four things today. Number one, what is compassion? Number two, how can we be more compassionate? Number three, why aren't we more compassionate? And number four, where can we get a sustained level of compassion without suffering from compassion, uh, compassion fatigue? Okay. So number one, what is compassion? Well, the Greek word for compassion is very interesting because the root word for compassion in Greek actually means your guts. In other words, when you experience compassion, you are moved deeply, down in your inner core, your heart, your soul, it's stirred. In Latin, the word calm means with, passion means suffering. So in Latin, it means to suffer together with someone so that they don't suffer alone. In other words, their heartache is now your heartache. Their anguish is your anguish. So compassion in many ways is the face of a mother or father that is cradling their sick child. Compassion is when you stand outside in the rain with another person simply because you you know that they don't have an umbrella. Compassion is suffering together with someone else. Uh, A few years ago, uh, uh, I went with a team to Kampala, Uganda, and we were working with a local church that worked with the, the poor and the impoverished Uh, in the city of Kampala. And we got to know one of the members uh, at the church, and her name was Precious. And we went to Precious's house, which was in the slums. And just so you know, the slums in Kampala make the ghettos in New York City look like Turks and Caicos. Because Precious's house was basically four very thin steel metal plates that weren't even connected together. She had no bedroom or kitchen or anything like that. All she had was a dirt floor and like this little fire that she would cook over. And as we got to know Precious and as she shared her stories, she would say that her rent cost about a dollar or $2 a day, but she couldn't afford it. And so she would purposely get herself intoxicated to sleep with other men in order to pay for rent that day. <sighs> I cannot tell you how much anguish I felt that day for Precious and the life that she was living. Her anguish became my anguish. Her heartbreak became my heartbreak. I like the way that Henry Nouwen puts it on the first page of your bulletin in his book, Compassion. Nouwen says that compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, To mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. Much like empathy, compassion sort of requires imagination because you have to imagine yourself in the other person's shoes. But compassion goes one step further than empathy because you not only imagine yourself in that person's shoes, but as you place yourself in their shoes, you help lead them out of their suffering. And so what that means then is that compassion is always coupled by feelings and actions, actions and feelings. This is why the gospel writers usually say that Jesus is always moved by compassion. He's not just filled with compassion, but he's moved by it. In other words, again, compassion is not just empathy, but it's always followed by action to help lead that person out of the suffering that they're experiencing. And in our passage today, Jesus is filled and moved by compassion for two blind men that are sitting on the side of the road. And the reason why I emphasize the side of the road is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke They all say that these two blind men are on the side of the road. And this picture sort of portrays the fact that these men are marginalized. They're on the side of the margins. They're not a part of the majority or the large multitude of people that are on the road. They're actually on the fringes as a part of the minority. And the reason why they're on the fringes is because they're blind. They can't see. And in the ancient world, if you were an adult, and you had a major, major disability, chances are your parents were already dead because of the lifespan back then. Chances are you probably weren't married. Chances are then you probably didn't have kids, which were your 401k. Chances are you didn't have a job, which meant that you were instantaneously in the class of poverty. And here in our passage, Jesus has moved with compassion for these two people. And there are two reasons why Jesus experiences compassion. And these are two ways that we can also experience compassion as well. Number one, Jesus stops. And number two, he humanizes. So if you take a look with me at verse 32. Verse 32, it says that Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked so the first thing that Jesus does is he stops. You know, one of the reasons why we don't experience compassion like we should is because we don't know how to slow down and we don't learn how to stop. Now, if, this was, if we were a church in another city or another suburb in the country, I probably wouldn't even talk about this point. But the reason why I'm talking about this point in our context is because in our city, we move 100 miles an hour. But there's one thing that you need to know Just because you live a busy life doesn't mean you have to live a hurried life. The two are very different. Being busy means you have a lot of things to do. Being hurried is your mental, emotional, spiritual state as you do all the things that you need to do. Just because you live a busy life, and we all do, I get it, it doesn't mean you have to live a hurried life. And honestly, this is something that I have had to ask for forgiveness to the Lord recently because I don't feel like, um, I don't have the equilibrium that I want. I feel frantic at times. This is something that I have had to ask for forgiveness to my wife. Even yesterday, Hannah said, I feel it when you're in a hurry. And so I'm, I'm stressing her out by the way that I'm living. And this is something that I've had to confess to God and to her and to ask her for forgiveness so one of the things that I have had to remind myself of is just because you're busy, it doesn't mean that you have to live a hurried life. Compassionate people are never in a hurry. They know how to slow down, in fact, they know how to park and stop right there. You know, a few weeks ago, again, I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry because we were, I was late dropping off my daughter to daycare. And usually, we just strolled to daycare like this, and she walks and I walk together. It's, it's usually like one finger actually like this. But this particular day, we were late. And so what do I do? I, I pick her up and I carry her in my right arm. And she's like three years old, and so she's a little bit bigger right now, and so she was blocking my entire right periphery. And it was as we we're about to cross the street, someone yells, wake up! And I look, and there's someone riding his bike, pumping his brakes, coming right at us. And the reason why he said, wake up, is because I was sleepwalking. I was moving 100 miles an hour, and yet simultaneously, I was sleepwalking. And the reason why I was sleepwalking is actually because I was moving 100 miles an hour. I wasn't mindful, I wasn't present, I wasn't woke because I was moving so fast. How much of this is such a metaphor for the way that we live our life? Because we move so quickly, we actually end up sleepwalking, and we're not as mindful of other people as we should be. This is actually one of the reasons why the blog Humans of New York is so popular, because the founder, the photographer Brandon Stanton, has made a career out of just slowing down. And the reason why I say that is because Brandon Stanton only takes pictures, not of celebrities, but ordinary New Yorkers doing ordinary things. And this is one of the things that Stanton says uh, on the first page of your bulletin. Stanton says, uh, one of my favorite compliments I get is, oh man, you photograph things that other people walk by every single day and don't notice. But somehow you photograph them and make them beautiful. So much that walks by me inspires me. I'm always very sensitive to whether or not I am getting jaded. So here are three practical things for us to slow down and pump the brakes. One thing that we can do, very practically speaking, is actually slow down. Why do we walk so fast when we're not late for something? Why do we walk so fast when we're not even in a rush? And so one thing that we can do is actually pump the brakes. Now, not, don't pump the brakes too much because you get run over, but pump the brakes enough actually to be mindful of your surroundings. And that's the second thing, to be mindful of your surroundings. Feel the chair that you're sitting on. Feel the clothes on your body. Feel the warmth in this room. Be more mindful and just be more present and more engaged with your surroundings and all the people around you. But there's a third thing that you can do to actually pump the brakes a little bit more. And it's something that Pastor Edwin does, uh, our, our speaker at our retreat and last two weeks ago. And I know he does this because he made me do this with him. Uh, at 2.01 p.m. every day, at 2.01 p.m., At every midpoint of the day, he has a check-in with God to see how he's lived up to this point in the day and how he can improve for the rest of the day. I love that. It's a a halftime huddle with God that he has every day at 2.01 p.m., and that is something that you can do as well to see how hurried you are living your life. Compassionate people are never hurried people. They know how to slow down, stop. Not glance, but look and be mindful of their surroundings. Now here's the second thing. The second, the second thing that Jesus does is that he asks the man a question, and he says, what can I do for you? In other words, he sort of humanizes them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever talked to someone that is begging for something, but typically when you talk to someone that's begging for something, they usually ask you a question. Excuse me, sir, can you buy me a cup of iced coffee? Usually when people are begging for something, they don't give a command, they ask a question. And here in this passage, Jesus turns the tables, and instead of them asking him a question, he actually asks them a question. What can I do for you? Now the sarcastic amongst us will think, what do you think they want? They obviously want to be able to see, so why is he asking the question? He's asking the question because by turning the tables around and asking them a question, he's making the insignificant feel significant. The unimportant feel important again. One of the ways of having more compassion towards other people is by humanizing them instead of dehumanizing them, which is precisely what the crowd does. And so if you take a look at verse 31, it says, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. The crowd doesn't say, let us help you onto your feet because this uh, David Copperfield miraculous healer is coming. Maybe you'll have a chance of finally seeing They don't even say, tone it down a little bit. The text actually says that they rebuke them. And now I don't know exactly what they said, but they said it in a way that was condescending, demeaning, and dehumanizing. Now here is a question, why do we act like this? Why are we so devoid of compassion? Let me give two reasons why we aren't filled with the type of compassion uh, that we typically need. Number one, we have sort of forgotten that this world is not the way that it should be. We have amnesia. Injustice, inequity, disease, poverty, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not natural, it's unnatural. This is not normal, this is abnormal, at least within the Christian worldview. But oftentimes, because we're so inundated by injustice and inequity and poverty and disease, it has sort of become our norm. And so sometimes we sort of functionally live like a secu- secular uh, Darwinian, uh, Darwinianist. And so if you take a look with me at uh, uh, the first page of your bulletin from Richard Dawkins' fav- uh, famous book, River Out of Eden, Our Darwinian View of Life, this is what uh, uh, Dawkins says. Uh, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world Is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. But again, in Christianity, we don't believe that this is natural. This is unnatural. This is not the norm. This is absolutely abnormal. Uh, Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller, Keller uh, has a Crohn's disease. And Crohn's disease is sort of this... Um, intestines kind of uh, 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 debilitating sort of abdominal chronic pain that she experiences. And so from time to time, he asks his wife, how are you feeling? And I love her response. So whenever he asks her, how are you feeling? Her response is, it's nothing that the resurrection can't cure. It's nothing that the resurrection can't fix. Because one day, God will host his own show called Fixer Upper, And he will make all things new and because he will make all things new and because that's what he cares about those are the types of things that we need to care about as well but the reason why we don't display the type of compassion that we ought to is because we've forgotten that this world is not the way that it should be but we have made it the norm there's a second reason why we are not filled or moved by compassion the way that we ought to be and the reason for that is because whenever we enter a relationship with other people whenever we enter a relationship with other people, they are making demands on us. Our parents make demands on us, our friends, our family, our bosses, the guy playing the guitar in the subway. Every person we enter into a relationship with, they are making demands of us. And the vulnerable and the poor, they make the most demands on us. They want our attention, our time, our money, our focus, Uh, are volunteering, they make the most demands on us. And because we have a marketplace mentality, this relationship is costly to us. It doesn't profit us the way that we want. And so in other words, we don't typically enter into these relationships. And so in the final quote of your uh, bulletin, Keller says, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us when we cease to make a profit that is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back then we cut our losses and drop the relationship this has also been called commodification a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange uh, relationships and with the poor in particular, they are the first to go because they are the most costly to us. They don't benefit us in any way. They don't feed my need for uh, entertainment. They don't solve my boredom. They don't solve my, uh, my issue with getting married or having kids or, or climbing up the social network or a particular corporate ladder. They don't help me in that way at all. And so the first to go all the time are the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the distressed. So here's the question then. How can we get a more sustained level of compassion for those that are outcasted by our society. Well, as I mentioned in the first point, the word compassion in Latin means to suffer with. And in the Christian story, this is exactly the type of posture that Jesus has to us. He suffers with us. Now, you cannot say that about any other God in any other religion in the world. But Jesus actually suffers with us, so he creates a world. <laughs> He punches a hole into it, steps into the world and becomes like one of us and shares in our misery. He knows what it's like to be lonely, to be abandoned by family. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to be rejected by his own people. He knows what it's like to experience racism. He knows what it's like to, have, to, to experience poverty. He knows the type of suffering that we have experienced because that's what compassion is, to suffer with other people. And he is the embodiment of compassion. In the 19th century, there was a missionary named Joseph de Vuciter who went to Molokai, Hawaii. And the reason why he went to Hawaii was because in Molokai, Hawaii, there was actually a leper community there. And Joseph went to work with the leper community and he would conduct uh, worship services every morning and he would begin the worship service by saying, my fellow believers, one early morning though, Joseph was making a hot cup of tea and as he was swirling the hot cup of tea, some of the boiling water actually splashed on his bare foot and he couldn't feel it. So he dropped a little bit more of the boiling water, but still there was no sensation on his bare feet. And Joseph instantly knew what had happened. He had contracted leprosy. And after taking a minute to digest what had just happened to him, he got ready for the worship service once again. But this time, instead of saying, my fellow believers, he began the worship service by saying, my fellow lepers. He had now become like one of them. Their life would now be his life their death would now be the type of death he would experience. And he would now understand what it is like to be one of them and to share in their sufferings. And that is precisely the Christmas story and what Jesus has done. God has become like one of us, and he understands what it's like to be with us, one of us. And he shares in our misery and in our suffering. But Jesus doesn't just suffer with us, but he also suffers for us as well. What does he suffer for us for? For our lack of compassion towards one another, our lack of love, our commodifying every relationship for our own hedonistic pleasures, for our self-centered lives. He dies for our sins. Our death now becomes his death. Our sins now become his sins. He suffers and dies for us. Now, if Jesus gives us that amount of compassion, so much so that he would give his life, how can we be so stingy with the compassion we give to one another? We can't be. If Jesus was compassionate towards us when we were weak, vulnerable, and dead in our sins, how can we not be compassionate to those in our society that are also weak and vulnerable? We cannot. So one of the things that we are trying to do as a church is be a launching pad and a springboard for us to be more compassionate and more loving. Today, after our service, we're hosting an event uh, for those that are being trafficked around the world. And if you don't, you don't know what you don't know, and so this is an opportunity to learn more about what is happening to so many victims that are experiencing injustice all over our city and in our world. In a few weeks, we're holding a bazaar which is great because we'll be able to help those in need and it's super fun for all of us. And next week, we're also going to announce a very practical way where we can humanize those that are poor and marginalized in our society. All this to say that we are here to serve you and to help you in the journey of becoming more and more Christ-like because the more compassionate we are for the distressed, the more like Jesus we are. The less compassionate we are for the distress, the less like Jesus we are. Let's pray together. Lord, life is uh, hard, you know, whether you're uh, uh, blind or not, whether you're you're outcasted by society or not, living in a very fallen world is very difficult. And so we are so uh, thankful and even amazed that you understand what we're going through. And we're also thankful and amazed that you not only sympathize with us, but you're actually going to do something about it. And So help us to do as much as we can as well, uh, to be compassionate to those that are hurting. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.